thank you so much for coming on to the show. Um, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. So I wanted to talk about your journey through personal development in this episode. So can you maybe start us off on how it started and where it's led you today? Yeah, sure. I can definitely do that. So for me, the initial journey started at approximately about four years old um, or yeah, around four coming to Australia. It was a massive shift for me because I'd originally come from Mauritius and it was a completely different environment, completely different place. I spoke fluent French all of a sudden. Now I'm speaking um, or learning how to speak fluent English. And I remember having a bit of a challenge with that and I was unable to make friends. I was having trouble communicating to people. And within that challenge, it really led me towards human behavior. It was the first steps of kind of studying people around me, assessing what they were doing, what were they doing with their tone, what were they doing with their hands, all of those things. Anything I could visibly have a look at and get an indication as to how I could possibly produce something similar to help me grow, that was the indication starting point. But like everybody else in life, and my own unique set of challenges, I was bullied, I was picked on. So I started to work on myself and I started to, what started off as just, you know, studying human development with Tony Robbins and that kind of thing, any free resources I could have eventually led to paid courses. And those paid courses are where I met a gentleman by the name of Dr. John Martini, who's my mentor today. And it was studying his work that he taught a method called the Martini method, where I let go of 26 years worth of baggage towards my father. And from that day, I knew that what I had just done in you know four to six hours uh, letting go of 26 years, I, I wanted to master that process, the Martini method and specialize in that so I could help others, but also continue to help myself. So what exactly is the Martini method? So it's a couple of things. I mean, it's not really an easy one off the bat answer, but I'll try and do it justice. Uh, it's a methodology and a unique set of questions, but it's structured around a specific process that allows you the opportunity because as Martini says, the quality of your life comes down to the quality of the questions that you ask yourself uh, to actually bring balance to your perceptions of yourself and others and permanently let go of emotions that you're experiencing forever, whether that's towards yourself, you can bring yourself up or down because you can exaggerate parts of yourself and bloat yourself up. You can also minimize parts of yourself and beat yourself up, but both of those have an impact on um, what you'll give yourself permission to do in life. But you can also do the same to others where you can exaggerate somebody's worth and towards the positive and slant that in a positive bias where you put them on a pedestal, you can put somebody else in a pit, but both of those occupy time and space in your mind. So the minute you dissolve those emotions, they stop occupying time and space in your mind. You become in control of your emotions instead of your emotions controlling you. Right. And that's, I guess, is a very important point. You controlling your emotions instead of your emotions controlling you. But how do you reach that stage? How do you let go of all these things that were cluttering you at that moment? Well, there are specific columns that do very specific things for the Martini method. Uh, so I'll go through a few of them. Um, I've got the sheets in front of me. So I'm going to do these, not verbatim, but I have done this a, a couple of thousand times over the last uh, 11 years with a couple of thousand clients. So uh, let's <laughs> say we're doing uh, the Martini method on somebody other than yourself. So somebody has demonstrated and displayed a specific trait action or inaction. 
Uh, so they could have said something to you, verbally put you down, physically hit you, uh, but they've done something or they haven't done something and you feel that it's now occupying time and space in your mind. Column number eight, because there's a side A and B of the Demartini method form. Side A is for your perceived positive perceptions. Side B is for your perceived negatives. Most of the time I'm working with people, it's perceived negative things, I find. But let's say that um, the person verbally yelled at you. The first column gets you to be very specific and identify all of the traits, actions, or inactions that this person's demonstrated or displayed that's occupying time and space in your mind. So now you're about to empty out the basket. If there's 10 things, 15 things, most people have an average of about eight, I found, uh, give or take. But first, we're going to identify those. So it's not going to be a talking therapy where somebody asks you how you feel and then 100 years later, they're still asking you how you feel. <laughs> it's about 80, 90% of my clients come to me because they're sick and tired of that form of therapy and they haven't found that it's produced results for them. They're just talking. So in that first column, you're identifying that. But then there's a great column that I love. I'm not going to go each column, but some of the ones that are very valuable. Uh, column number 10, where you go to a specific moment, because anything that you perceive a person did that you're holding on to emotionally has a time and space element, a time in which they did it, a day, week, month, year ago, and a space in which they did it, your kitchen, your lounge room, while you were talking on the phone driving, but there's a particular time and space element. You get clear on that time and space, you make sure that they demonstrated and displayed that. I say you make sure because I work with clients where they said, my father uh, put my mum down. And then when I went to those moments, that's not what happened. They just perceive that's what happened, but they actually realized they, were, they never actually saw it. So they can't say that, that somebody else told them that it happened. Um, and that would be hearsay. But uh, you get clear on that. And then in that moment, following the Martini method, you balance your perceptions of it. And you ask the confirmation question, which gets you to see the other side of that specific event. Because anytime we exaggerate the positive, it sticks, occupies time and space in our mind. That's why any of your listeners that have ever been infatuated with somebody before, a man or a woman, they can't get them out of their head. And anybody that they resent, they can't get out of their head. But anybody that you bring balance to actually moves towards the superconscious part of the mind instead of the unconscious or subconscious and brings it into balance. So as you go through the process, it helps you dissolve it more and more. And then the confirmation question, because there's a question, there's an exercise and then a confirmation question. And the purpose of the confirmation question is to bring balance and make sure you're there. This is what you were asking about. How do I know that I'm there? So it's not a vague process where you can go through and go, oh, I didn't really do it because the confirmation question will say something along the lines of, can you now see that this trait action or inaction that this person demonstrated and displayed has 100% equally as many benefits as drawbacks, pains, as pleasures, services as disservices? And you don't stop the process until you can see both and you equilibrate the mind, open the heart and actually let go of it. Right, right. A lot of people perceive personal development as a form of therapy. Would you say that's true or would you say that personal development is much more different to therapy? Uh, it really matters on your definition and what specifically you're attempting to do. Um, the Demartini method is a personal equilibration um, uh, method. So it's very, very different. It's above and beyond just a development of that. Uh, I personally don't believe in a person needing to develop any part of them, but actually bring into their awareness the part that they already have and give themselves permission. Because anything that a person perceives after develop, I work with clients day in and day out and help them with that. Now, will that have therapeutic results for people? Of course. If a person has been down and out, I mean, I've seen this in thousands of cases. Uh, in fact, I just spoke with a client today. Uh, she had had a few situations that occurred in her life. She had emotionally never let go of them. 
we balanced her perceptions around them and she completely transformed not only perceptions around that, but the way in which she looked at life. So if the purpose of therapy is to dissolve emotions and create therapeutic change, then she's done that. But uh, technically people can get therapeutic change from many things. They could change a diet and get therapeutic change. Right. In one of the podcasts you were on before, I can't really remember one of them. You said that we as people, we cannot develop traits. We can only enhance them or kind of build upon them. Can you kind of um, ex explore that point a little bit? Yeah. So the, the main principle behind that is that every human being is every human trait and anti-trait. We never gain or lose a trait. That's through the law of conservation. So all of the work that I do is based around universal laws. There are laws that are applicable to energy. The reason we do that is because everything in the universe is made out of energy. So if we're trying to get something or do something that doesn't align with the way in which the physics of the universe, which is a studying of the way the universe is, instead of projecting the way it is onto it, then we're going to get a result that is incongruent. Uh, we can't fly, not because we can't fly, because there are laws in reference to um, pardon me, um, uh, trying to say the word, but I've lost it here, but aerodynamics, I was going to say ergodynamics, but aerodynamics, there are specific physics and laws that we've studied and learned the algorithms around that. One of those is in terms of energy, energy cannot be killed, cannot be destroyed. It can only be transformed. You, myself, the desk or table or chair that people are sitting on or around uh, listening to this podcast, or maybe you're at the gym um, and you're running on a treadmill, that's all energetic. So if we can't lose any human traits, so anything that you label positive or negative, it's conserved. We just transform them. It's why is it to stop deleting half of ourselves or attempting to anyway and learn how to love and appreciate those parts? Interestingly enough, whatever we attempt to delete, we end up attracting. On the weekend, I had dinner with some friends and they were telling me about these interesting situations that they attracted with volatile partners. And we found out that both of them were exaggerating the this idea of being a positive person and attracted what they perceived to be a negative person, but they needed those people to help them toughen up. So you can't get rid of any human traits and any part that you dislike and despise. Once again, this is why I love the Martini method. Column number two and nine of the method gets you to actually have a look for a reflective transparency, reflection being like a mirror where you actually see to what you see in others you have in yourself equally to the same degree if you're working with somebody else or just owning it within yourself. But the more I get people to own those parts of them, the more of them they start to love, they become whole. You can never be whole if you're always trying to delete half of yourself. And the person that's going to do amazing and inspiring and empowering things in this world, they need to be whole because they need to activate as many parts of them as possible. In fact, I'll go as far as to say that nobody will ever do something amazing in this world without owning their saint and a sinner, their hero and the villain, both the perceived positive and the negative traits. Because every message that you're trying to bring forward supports and challenges people's values and the world's made of complementary opposite value systems. Therefore, for every person you're pleasing, you're pissing somebody off. And if all you're interested in is pleasing people and being a person pleaser, you'll never really get up too far. We'll never do anything that uh, is too extravagant because you'll be too worried about pissing people off instead of really going out there and doing something profound. Right. One thing you mentioned um, in the beginning of um, what you just said is that we cannot change who we are because of the law of conservation. But that's, a, I guess, a law of physics. But our brain, is it's very plastic. And now due to our brain's plasticity, no, no, we no, should a, be... Let me just adjust that. It's not about not changing. It's not altering or deleting a human trait. Because right, we can... Okay. Yeah, yeah. Changing would mean your brain changes uh, through neuroplasticity every second. 
uh, scientists used to believe that what um, you, they saw was what it was, but they've now learned that it's uh, readjusting itself on a you know second per second basis within that. And when I work with clients, we're creating rapid changes. I once worked with a client that had a 10-year association towards their mother. And in three years of a breakthrough, when I read them back the forms that I'd written, um, uh, pardon me, in three hours of a breakthrough, uh, three hours earlier, and she was laughing and couldn't believe that she'd written it. So there was that much of a neurological shift. She actually thought that I was lying when I first started reading what she'd written. So I'm not saying a person can't change. I'm saying the way in which, so your human traits. So say, um, uh, what's a good example of that? Verbally putting people down. If a person says, I'm going to change and never do that again. No, that's a lie. Because if people support your values, you put them up. And if people challenge your values, you put them down. And the more that you go to evolve and grow and share your message with the world, you're going to have some people that have extremes and opposites towards that. And to defend yourself, you may have to put them down or what they're saying. Otherwise, they're going to walk all over you. So your human traits and their opposites are conserved and you'll never get rid of them. But change is something, if anything, it's inevitable. And all we have is change. How do we then change our emotions and our responses to a more positive view instead of that negative you are exploring? Yeah, that's a great question. See, most people won't want to ask this. And the reason that people don't want to ask, the root of all our emotions is our amygdala. And the root of all of our growth and expansion is the forebrain. It's a much more evolved part of the brain. Whereas the amygdala, this was a part that was developed when we were out hunting and had um, lions and tigers and all kinds of things attacking us. Now, the amygdala can be stimulated sometimes faster than what the forebrain can be, unless a person's trained. That's what I train people to do, to activate a higher part of their mind. Because a higher part can see a balance of positives and negatives equally, but the lower part only sees positives or negatives. And one is either, so it's either positive or negative, lower part of the brain, and the higher part is neither positive or negative, has a higher level. In fact, rational means the ratio in which you see things. The lower part of the brain is irrational and emotional and volatile, and the higher part of the brain, it is much more rational and has reason and meaning and can plan towards the future. So the animal mind is looking to do a few things. It's trying to avoid pain and seek pleasure. It's avoiding a predator and seeking prey. The problem with that is it's hedonistic in the way in which she wants to live life. And it all wants this a positive experience of things. So you could say the fantasy of avoiding the nightmare. But if I put that in any scenario, you never get a nightmare without a fantasy that's conserved. So if you meet somebody and uh, you say it's a male or female and you're infatuated with them, eventually you're going to resent them because you put them on a pedestal and all of the exaggerated positives they can never live up to. Nobody's always beautiful, always nice, never mean, always supports you, never challenges you. Um, all those kinds of things, alls or nuns, these are polarized uh, language that's associated with the lower part of the brain. In fact, the lower part of the brain has less connections to it, which creates a, a kind of like a one or the other response. And the higher part of the brain has billions of connections. So it has an ability to search through like a database to make the most evolved decision. So people that are addicted to positivity uh, usually the ones that have the most negative experiences because they're trying to delete half of themselves or other people of the universe only to have it consistently be there. Whereas the people that embrace both, uh, the ones that are most resilient, if you're only resilient towards one side, the other side always rears its ugly head. 
But those that are resilient towards both sides are the ones that evolve and grow and maximize their potential and they thrive within those environments. So it's the perceived positives in others, say if you're dating somebody interested in them, that's usually when they you end up giving them too much money, time, subordinating yourself in their values, minimizing yourself, all of those things. If it's within yourself, you're addicted to positive parts of yourself, you'll usually minimize the desire to challenge other people and then you minimize yourself and constantly live within their values not to, not seeing the other side of it or try and only be that um in that so that'll end up with low self-worth but uh even in business and i've seen it in all seven areas of life with a physical financial mental spiritual social vocation and family how do we embrace our negatives a lot of people like you said would only look at the positives and kind of go from there but it's also important to embrace the negatives how do people accept that i'd go beyond accept and say that the d martini method teaches them to love now before i said that uh if you were working on somebody else but there's a whole form dedicated to yourself but uh, i'll stick to the working on somebody else because there's some columns in there that are very interesting too so if, if you were working on somebody else and maybe it was that they uh, uh ignored you by phone You'll only be annoyed at a person for ignoring you by phone if there are parts of you that have demonstrated and displayed that in the past that you're unconscious of and is triggering that. So in column number nine of the Martini method, it takes a perceived negative trait, action or inaction, and the column gets you to have a look for reflective, ref, what they call reflection and transparency. Reflection means like a mirror um, that you can see that you demonstrate and display that perceived negative trait equally and transparency. Other people see it too because uh, we want to make sure that ourselves and others see it. Otherwise, we think we're getting away with something. So when a person does that, they may feel a little bit of guilt or shame for demonstrating and displaying that because they now realize the perpetrator or a person they thought was an extreme negative, they've actually done that quantitatively, same amount of times and quantitatively to the same degree. So in uh, column number 12, it actually gets a person to go to specific moments where they've demonstrated and displayed that and then see the benefits and the services to themselves and others equally within all seven areas of life, you kind of go around the wheel in that moment and leading on from that moment. And you don't stop until you can 100% see that what you demonstrated and displayed at equally as many benefits as drawbacks. So to give you an example, I've worked uh, with a lot of mothers that feel the need to be a super mom figure. I've got to always be there for my kids. I can't leave them alone. And they have all of these charges towards themselves for perceived negative things they've done, like not being there for the kids during specific moments. So we go to those moments, we get them to see the benefits equal to the drawbacks. And by the time they're done, they actually realize that there were specific benefits for the kids that they weren't even aware of. The mom that I work with recently realized that in the moments where she supported the children, they got addicted to her support and she minimized their growth. But in the moments where she actually backed off, that was usually when they evolved, started doing things themselves and stopped relying on her and grew their independence and their self-worth was reliant on that. So their self-worth went up when she let them do things them, her, themselves because they were doing it themselves. So by them doing it themselves, self-worth. But other worth grew when she did things for them. She was the other person, but it came at the risk of them losing stuff themselves. She actually realized it was a balance in that. So that particular column, number 12, dissolves all guilt and shame and gets you to see that whatever you demonstrate and display as two sides, it's just your perspective on it. And once again, the confirmation question gets you to keep going and not stop until you see both sides. Because it isn't a question of whether it's balanced. It's the question of whether you see the balance. But it isn't a question of whether it's balanced. That's quantum entangled. There are physics laws behind that. 
one thing that I um always want to know about is quantum equilibrium. I think that's your company or your book. Company name. Yeah, right. So what what does what does that mean? Quantum equilibrium. I find that a very interesting name because I usually associate that with chemistry. So what yeah. is quantum equilibrium in this context? Oh, I just made that up. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when I first started doing this work, there's a there's a whole degree of uh, physics and physiology, psychology, biology. Um, there's a range of ologies associated that inter interconnect and uh, entwine into each other to make what are the teachings of the Demartini Institute and what my company Quantum Equilibrium teaches. But um, it used to be called uh, the Emmanuel Anthony Institute. But as I started to realize what was really happening working with clients day in and day out, we changed our name to Quantum Equilibrium because quantum is the smallest unit of light, and every unit of light has both a positron and a negatron, a positive and a negative force, and they're quantum entangled and they can't be separated and they're equal to each other, one-to-one. -one. So when I work with clients, they bring an area of enlightenment and we bring balance to that. And then they move from one level and enlightenment can be seen as equilibrium because it's um, uh, the symmetry of both positive and negative. So I'm moving with my clients from one level of enlightenment to another. We like to think of it as the smallest to the largest levels of enlightenment that a person can have. So that's what uh, the company represents. But it just sounds like a pharmaceutical company sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, but I love it. Um, it's 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 a very fascinating name, and it clearly represents what is what your company is doing. Um, but yeah. can you explain how someone may reach quantum equilibrium? Because well, well, it's not a yeah, state that they reach of all enlightenment, because although we aim for that, we're never going to get there. Um, but to be all enlightenment would mean to be, be and know everything about the universe. It's about levels of growth and evolution. So a person may come to me, if I give you some real world examples, uh, I had a gentleman that came to, be, to work in because he had a, a lot of emotional things that were occupying time and space in his mind. So we found out that one of them was to do with an ex worked on that, brought it into balance, realized that the real deeper issue was his self-worth. So he worked on that. That was his next level of enlightenment through that. As he worked on that, uh, he then realized that his relationship started to change, but there are seven areas of mastery, physical, financial, mental, spiritual, social, vacation, and family. And in fact, uh, people will blame others, but then once they finish the process with me, they realize that they were the ones that held the key to their enlightenment and the other people had nothing to do with it. They were just part of the ride. So that's why uh, in my programs that I created, level one, a person comes and I work with them uh, specifically one-on-one -on -one to help them bring balance. Once they've done that, they've got confidence in the, the method and the process that we apply. So quite often they'll do our level two program where I teach them to do that. So now they can let go of me. It's not a psychiatric model. You'll have to have me be there for the rest of your life. But now you actually have the opportunity to do those things yourself. And bring your own perceptions into balance, whether it's a grief or yourself or somebody else, an infatuation, a resentment, an event, situation, or thing, which actually covers every perception you'll ever have in your life, uh, yourself, others, events, situation, or thing, uh, whether it's a grief or anything else, but it's it's all actually covered in that. So we teach them how to do that. So they move to the next level of enlightenment where they actually know how to bring balance to their perceptions within minutes and hours that they could have held for years. Then in the next level, so as they start doing that, they realize that the areas, because there's seven areas of mastery, the areas that they had the lowest level of masteries are actually the areas that the biggest challenges came in. 
So they start to realize that maybe they should be the ones that set the tone towards those challenges. So in other words, if you're doing phenomenal in business, but you're not really looking after your finances at some stage, somebody comes after you financially because you're not keeping an eye on that area. If you're great financially, great within your career, but not keeping an eye on your relationship, eventually you end up in a divorce because you didn't water that area. And over time and compounded interest, that relationship got more volatile and you end up with challenges there. So they realize that first off, they were actually holding on to the emotions was the cause of their challenges. They empowered themselves in that area. Then they realized that you actually need to empower yourself in all seven areas and there's no escaping that. So they start setting the tone within all those areas and then they continue to move and evolve from there to greater degrees of wealth and development. So that's our level three program, et cetera. But we've always created our programs based on the next level of the requirements that our students had. As we worked with hundreds of students, we'd noticed that certain challenges occurred at each level but then at some point, we'd find that there was a next level of challenges that clients would have. And then we started producing whatever was necessary to help them overcome those next level challenges. And every few years, we discover another level to acquire and put together. So how did you develop these seven levels of mastery? Where did it like exactly come from? Well, the seven areas isn't anything new. I mean, there's different studies that say six areas or five areas, et cetera. So um, the areas of life have been around. I wouldn't be surprised if I said centuries. But uh, through working with clients, and um, it started off with the Demartini method, just explaining the seven areas of mastery. But as I started to apply that into clients and then um, reflect and look at my own life, I started to notice that whatever my values were, they were coming from my voids. So that whatever I perceived to be most missing was creating the areas that were most valuable. But sometimes we neglect certain areas because you don't have as much of a value for them, but volatility is guaranteed to strike in that area. And then I noticed that the areas I had the biggest challenges in were usually the ones that I had fear um, to actually manage. But eventually the challenges got so big, I couldn't, um, the, the idea of holding on to the fear and not taking on those challenges, I couldn't do anymore. So once I saw that that was a given within my life and other people's and that uh, there was no escaping mastering all seven areas and that you were going to attract big challenges and seeing that again and again uh, in my daily practice with clients, then from there, I said that something needed to be done in terms of a strategy to assist people to be proactive in their ability to diminish major challenges in those areas coming in extreme volatility as compared to reactive um, and when a person comes at level one, they're usually reactive because stuff's already happened and we're balancing it in most cases. But by the time they get to level three, uh, hopefully they've really understood the principles and what we're teaching. And now they're being proactive and actually starting to solve them before they become an issue. How are we meant to be more proactive in our lives? Like from certain stimuli, most people tend to be reactive. And I've talked about this before in one of the previous episodes we've done. And this notion of proactive and reactive comes up a lot, especially in personal development. So from your perspective, how can we be more proactive? The best way I've seen is through the application of the Demartini method, because it activates and stimulates and uh, increases the receptors um, and how they fire and how fast they fire towards activating the higher part of the brain. And as you activate the forebrain more, you actually start to access that part of the brain more and more. So with all of my clients, one thing that I've seen them say or heard them say to me at one point or another is, I'm not reacting to things in my day-to-day -day anymore. I'm actually seeing both sides of them. I'm not emotional. 
And that's because we take their biggest charge that's occupying the most time and space and resolve that. And then they use the same principles for these other areas. But usually they're doing it consciously, but then it eventually part of it becomes unconscious and they start dealing with a whole range of things uh, in a way that they've never seen before. So it's by doing the specific exercises in the Martini method that activate the forebrain and allow that to become the part that is more receptive and activates faster than the lower part of the brain. So with quantum equilibrium, how can we achieve quantum equilibrium? I feel like I've asked this before, but I want... I was just thinking if you can go into more depth. So the main key is to, well, I'll take you through an aspect of my level one program. In my level one program, usually a person will come to me because they've got specific challenges in their life. They'll say something like, I'm depressed, I've got anxiety, my relationship has emotional challenges. But really all that comes down to is the emotions that they're currently experiencing that are occupying time and space psychologically and physiologically within their body. Uh, that are becoming more and more volatile and it's harder for them to live their life without these things uh, becoming a real challenge. So at level one, we take the highest area and imagine the mind as a hard drive. And when you think of a hard drive uh, on my Mac, I'm a Mac person, I can go through and click on the Apple icon and then have a look at see what's actually comprised within my hard drive, just in case it's running slow, I want to have a look. And it will give me a graph and that graph will show that maybe 50% are files, 20% are images, uh, 3% are videos, but it'll give me an analysis of what's going on within that. And we all know that regardless of whether we're using a PC or a Mac, the more items you have on there and the smaller the degree of space, so if you've only got 3% of space free, the computer usually starts to run slow. Well, the mind actually works in a very similar way. And if we have a lot of things that we've accumulated in what we call emotional baggage throughout the years, and we continue to have those occupied time and space within our mind and our body, eventually we also create what's known as anchors and triggers. An anchor meaning something that occurs, just like a ship drops an anchor, um, then whatever it is that occurs is connected to us unconsciously. And if something similar that, to that happens, so you might be have had a moment with your father or somebody else or they used a certain tone, and now that's an anchor. And the minute you hear that, because you're anchored into that unconsciously, it triggers off a specific response. And that response will be directly proportionate to how much you've resolved that specific issue or challenge. Now, if a person has maybe only a little percentage of their mind working, they'll start to feel slow. And they'll start to feel just like a computer, like they're not running efficiently and they're not themselves are the words that I usually hear. So we start off by working on the biggest area. The biggest area is maybe 40%. And the person only had 10% that they were actually, or 15% of their mind they were actually using now we've got 40% and 15. Now we've gone from the smaller percentage to the higher percentage. So that's like 55%-ish. I think I forgot what figures I said, but it's around 55. If we work in another area that's maybe 20%, now we're in 75. And we just keep clearing the mind until it gets back to its original state or as close to. Now, keeping in mind that as life's going on, other challenges are occurring at the same time. So there's two things that are really important that I help a person work on the past, but teach them the tools to be able to work on the future. Within that, it's also important to find out what a person's highest values are. And this isn't honor or integrity or anything like that. Whatever's highest in your values is the area that you're most organized, disciplined, reliable, and focused. So for me, family creation and human evolution, development, and growth. You speak about any of those areas, I'm organized, I'm disciplined, I'm reliable, I'm focused. Um, you'll notice that I spontaneously do things without being asked. But anything lower in my values, I procrastinate, hesitate, and frustrate. 
Um, so you could think of it this way. There are things that your listeners would do where five minutes feels like five hours because they can't be bothered doing it. And then there are other things they do for five hours and it feels like they only did it for five minutes and they can't believe the time is gone. So time and space shrinks when we do things that we love and it expands when we do things that we dislike and despise. So um, helping clients to do what they love and love what they do, which also maximizes resilience because you take on positives and negatives um, on pursuit of your highest mission and whatever is most valuable to you. Um, and you also are inspired to do that. So you're inner driven instead of outer driven um, in that inspiration instead of motivation. Whenever you need motive from the outside, it's short lived. But whenever you have inspiration from the inside, it's long, long-term energy. It's like having a battery that never stops. So by helping clients dissolve their biggest baggage, do as much as that as possible so they clear up the time and space um, horizons within their mind, uh, transitioning them into doing what they love. And when they do what they love, start to bring balance to their emotional baggage and then bring mastery to all seven areas of life. So they've let go of the past. They start to create a plan that inspires them in the future in all seven areas of life. And they're present here in this current moment. And that's what helps a person uh, gets to a higher level of equilibrium to the greatest degree. What inspired you to do this? I mean, just like your answers to all my questions are so fascinating. They're so detailed and you clearly have so much experience. What drove you to become this person and to start quantum equilibrium and help helping others? Drug, sex and rock and roll mainly. Um, <laughs> I'm joking, but there's an element of truth towards that. Um, our voids create our values and growing up, my uh, family or at least my, majorly on my father's side, was highly Catholic. And I'm an atheist today, but the strictness of all of that led me to a point where I was very inspired to study and ask questions around the uh, things that were said that they were either black or white. They had to be one way or the other. <coughs> I mixed up. So I remember asking a lot of questions, but the religion never had the answers. Obviously, I had to search for science for certain things as I was asking a priest about things that they couldn't possibly understand. So I started looking outside of that. And then I went through different mentors, which eventually led to Dr. John D. Martini. And uh, I realized that even within when I was studying personal development, there were layers and there are lower layers and higher layers. There are things that are the truths. And then there are things that are fads. Positive thinking was a big fad that I started off with. And I kept trying to positively think and then beat myself up when I couldn't live up to it. And then it wasn't until I met Dr. John D. Martini and I thought, why is it that there isn't one aspect? He's the only person out of everyone I've studied in $300,000 worth of study. It's actually more than that, I think we calculated. But um, he's the only person who I haven't been able to find one hole in any aspect of his work. And then when I asked him about it, I realized he was he still is the Guinness Book record holder for most books read by a human being. I think it's over 350,000. Um, and uh, he studies over, he studied over 100 ologies and brought uh, a synchronicity to them um, to bring them together. So when I saw that, I realized I was studying what's known as a polymath. There isn't many of those in the world. Uh, you can have a person that has a specialty in one area, but he has a specialty um, in over 100 areas, uh, which is just unheard of. I think when he, when he dies, people will realize what this man's actually brought to planet Earth in terms of his knowledge and his teachings. But um, as I started to see that, uh, his teachings, uh, they combine a range of different ologies because they're all interconnected. So you can't learn about psychology without understanding the physiological impacts. So now you're learning physiology too, but you can't learn physiology without understanding that there's a deeper impact to that, which happens on human biology. 
um, within that. But then as you study those, you actually realize that they have an impact on sociology and way in which a person may connect with others um, in that. So there's all of these areas are intertwined and interconnected. And I originally had a look because it was for challenges that were occurring within my own life. But as I did that, I realized that these tools were applicable to help others. And then I realized that I could help myself by helping others because this method I learn, I can apply it to myself, but I get paid when I actually apply it to others. But the more I evolve, the more I give myself permission to help others. So it's kind of a two-way streak. So I look to work on myself and others as much as I possibly can. And um, today I'm blessed to say that uh, I get handsomely paid to do what I love and love what I do. And uh, there was definitely periods in my life where I felt that I wouldn't be lucky enough to do that or how do you do that? Uh, but now I get to play in an amazing field. That's exciting to me, may not be to everybody else, but that's how I've gotten to where I am today. And today I'll try and delegate as many things that are less inspiring to me, to my assistant, and spend as much time researching, writing, and teaching and doing the things that are inspiring on a daily basis because I like to work about a good healthy 12-hour day and play golf in between. But um, if I can research and study and write, uh, then I figure my, my main saying I tell myself is, I don't want to leave the day with the same knowledge I walked into it. I just, I want to have some new things um, so I can evolve and grow. That was amazing. Emmanuel, thank you so much for coming on. That was an excellent conversation. There's lots of points to learn about yourself and others during that. And I thank you so much for coming on and giving us your time. Thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time and giving me space. And uh, I look forward to sharing this on my social media platforms with all of my followers and giving them an opportunity to listen to this while they go for their jog or their walk or their run. And just uh, hopefully they get some nuggets of wisdom just as much as your followers do and something that's applicable that will help them create a profound change within their life. Thank you, Manuel. Ciao.